Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me in a deep dive into the history of my faith, history of the Bible, the canon of the Bible, the, the ancient way the churches worshipped and, 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 and structured and, and all these kinds of things. And well, that journey landed me into looking into the Catholic Church. And it was then, as I began looking into what the Catholic Church actually believed in and said about itself, that I realized what I thought I knew about Catholicism was based in large part on misinformation and more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap, the gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. But this week is a little bit different. One of the few guests I've had on this show who hasn't been Catholic is my good friend Austin Suggs from the Gospel Simplicity YouTube channel. I met Austin uh, kind of on a whim, but a year ago he produced a video about going to a Catholic Bible study and then a Catholic Mass and his impressions as an evangelical studying at Moody Bible Institute on, on what that was like. Well, I reached out to Austin back then, a year ago, and had him on the show to talk about his experience and this idea of kind of undoing some misinformation about the Catholic Church, which is really the bread and butter of, of this show. And we had a great conversation and really sparked a great friendship as a result. Well, I wanted to have him back a year later because he has, in this interim, in this last year, been hosting this fantastic YouTube channel with, with tons of subscribers and fantastic conversations between with Catholic and Protestant Orthodox scholars and, and, and clergy and having these great conversations about the ancient church and the Catholic faith and comparing and contrasting points of view. And he's learned a ton along the way. So I wanted to have him back on this show a year later to unpack what he has learned so far and to ask him the question about what what he's thinking about these things, what, what's challenging his faith. And I guess at the core, why, why isn't he Catholic yet? <laughs> what's going on? Of course, we're very cordial in our conversation and, and really we're having a great talk here. And we're good friends at the end of the day. So I'm not going to push him too hard, despite what you may have heard from other guests, Dr. Thomas in particular. <laughs> we're, we're cordial here. It's a great conversation, really a, a, a snapshot of somebody on, on a trajectory, on a journey. And I don't know where Austin will end up in the end. That's not the point of the thing. But a picture of somebody asking these questions and what that looks like and, and how we wrestle through questions like these. It's a great conversation. I think you will love it. And my, my deepest thanks to, to Austin for his friendship and for these these kinds of conversations. It's really so much fun. I hope you enjoy it too. This conversation and all on this podcast are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordial catholic and our one-time donors at paypal.me slash cordial catholic. Your, your help, your support of this show, if you believe in what we're doing here, that goes back into helping this show continue to keep going and keep growing. It's not my full-time job and you guys help to underpin this thing. So thank you. Thank you for your support. 
without any further ado, here goes my conversation with my friend Austin Suggs on why he's not Catholic and what he's learned in the last year. Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Uh, thanks for watching. Thank you for listening. If you are watching on YouTube, thank you. Please hit the subscribe button and, and like this video. Hit the bell. All those things that people on YouTube do. If you are watching, you also can listen to on podcast. If you're listening, you can watch too at youtube.com slash the cordial Catholic. We're 10 seconds into this episode and I've already totally mangled up what I wanted to say at the beginning. And that is because uh, I have a guest who's a good friend. He's thrown me off my game entirely. I am I'm joined, rejoined by my friend Austin Suggs. Austin is a proprietor and host of the Gospel Simplicity YouTube channel a student at Moody Bible Institute, and an expert, he says, in absolutely nothing. So, Austin, thank you for being here. Welcome back to the show, and hello. Hello, Keith. It is so good to be back. This is going to be a lot of fun. I, I, I want to say a little bit about our, our friendship and relationship and how I f first met you, and then I want you to tell listeners who don't know you a bit about your story, and, and we'll, then we'll get into some of the other stuff of this show. But it's been, I think, maybe a year, almost a year, a bit more than a year since we first first chatted, Austin. And it was YouTube that suggested you to me originally. I remember I was doing something on YouTube and this video popped up that was uh, like a Catholic's in impressions of, of going, to, or sorry, impressions of a Catholic Bible study or something like this. It was, I think, one of your very first videos in that sphere. And it was you kind of talking about going to a Catholic Bible study and your impressions and undoing some of your misunderstandings or, or, or wrong impressions you had of Catholics. And I, I saw that, I saw you, I, I listened to what you were saying, and I'm like, this guy is, is my stuff. This is my jam. Because what I do on this show, you know, is is undo some of those misunderstandings and try and kind of correct those those impressions people have, those mistaken impressions, and that's what I do. So here's a guy, an evangelical guy, who did the same thing, who encountered those things and, and was beginning to unwind your mis your misinterpretations and your wrong impressions and and, and things of, of, of Catholics, of real Catholics. So that's how I first encountered you. And then I reached out to you and said, hey, you want to come on the show? We'll, we'll, we'll chat about this. And uh, we kind of, I think both of us kind of jury rigged a setup that would allow us to to do this. And because uh, it was new for me entirely back then, I don't think I even had a YouTube channel at the, at that point. And we did it. We did it. We had, we had a chat about this, about you know looking into the Catholic faith and what you were discovering and 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 wondering. And so I thought, I mean, a year later, let's chat again, and cause I want to know what you're thinking. What you've what you've thought, what you've discovered. I don't often have a chance to to have a guest on the show who's kind of exploring the Catholic faith, in a sense that you, you know in the way you're doing, having guests on, chatting about these issues, chatting about issues of orthodoxy and, and church history and these kind of things. I get people at the end of their journey sometimes when they've either become Catholic or come back to the Catholic faith or something like that. But there there are, and I want to maybe I'll I'll I'll, I'll misuse you maybe. <laughs> A little bit in the show, but we don't get a chance to to have people who are on that journey or are thinking about that journey or asking these questions come on the show when they're asking the questions, 
Right. And I'm not going to say that you, you'll ask those questions and get to a certain conclusion that guests on my show always come to. But this is a, this is a, a stage of the journey that a lot of the people on this, on this program are on that we don't get to see kind of in the process, if that, if that makes sense. So, Austin, all that to say, why don't you tell us, tell listeners who don't know you very well, and there'd be a few of them out there, Give us a bit of your backstory, kind of leading up maybe to your first that first video that you made when you encountered that that Bible study, and and then from there went to your first Catholic mass, and then exploded onto, onto YouTube. So you forgot came on your channel and then exploded. That's I, that's the real I key didn't, there. You know the Canadian in me, which is all of me because I'm fully Canadian, <laughs> didn't didn't want to go there, but YouTube knows. They they know. Right, you came, you came on my pot and then exploded. Right, so thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> hey, anytime. Yeah, so I mean, I think you hit a lot of it really well. Probably the most important line in there was "expert in nothing," so take everything I say with like three grains of salt. <laughs> but yeah, so as far as the backstory to all of this, I. I started a YouTube channel almost three years ago, and at the time, I had no intention of getting into kind of ecumenical dialogue. I probably couldn't have even defined the word <laughs> ecumenical at the time. But over the course of time, kind of making devotional videos and things like that, I was reflecting on some of just the divisions in the country here in the U.S. At the time, there was a lot of just uh, social unrest, and I was trying to think about that theologically. And that prompted me to think about divisions in the church. I thought, hey, I should make a video about this. I'm all about bringing people together. It's something I'd always been interested in. I just enjoyed talking to people that have different opinions than me because that seems like the best way to learn. And so I remembered my experience of going to a Catholic Bible study with my uncle. Uh, people can find the video of that that you kind of referenced there. And I thought, I should make a video about this. At the time, my channel, I... I don't know, it was probably like a hundred subscribers or something and got 10 views per video. And three of them were my mom and two were my grandmother. Um, and the other were just like YouTube bots. But I made that video, didn't think much of it. And it didn't really do anything at first, which was the interesting thing. It's actually probably the only video I've ever had that started slow, but then took off. I don't know if it got picked up on Reddit or something. I don't really know what happened there. But all of a sudden, all of these Catholics were finding my humble little evangelical channel, and they were asking really good questions that I didn't know the answer to. Now, I love theology. At that point, I was already a theology student. But looking into Catholicism wasn't something that interested me. But all of a sudden, I found myself with a lot of smart people around me, virtually, asking questions I didn't know, which made me want to find answers. And basically, the last year or so of my channel has been me trying to find the smartest people I can to ask them my less than smart questions. And it's attracted an audience of people that want to ask those same questions or maybe see themselves in me at a you know point in their journey prior or where they're at now. And so it's been a fun journey and it's gotten uh, me in conversations I never would have dreamed of. Got to meet people like you come on. I remember yeah. when you invited me on your podcast, it was the first podcast I came on. I was walking <laughs> to get ice cream. I was like, someone wants me on a podcast. This is amazing. I bought this microphone to go on your podcast. Oh, um, yeah. And so it's been a really fun journey. Yeah. It served you well, that microphone. So it yeah. has, yeah. it really has. Yeah. You're welcome. I I love that. And if, like I said before, a minute ago, one of the cool things is that we get to see these these questions being asked. And I mean, and for for good or ill, you're in a very public 
the spotlight, <laughs> right? Well, well, you well you ask these questions, but one of the beautiful things is a lot of these questions are things that people ask kind of on their own or kind of it's it's not so public, right? So you give us a chance to explore these topics in a very very public way, in a really honest and open way, and yeah, kind of see see. A, a journey or, or help people on a journey to, to answer and ask these kind of questions alongside you, right? I think, I think it's really neat. So tell us a bit about, I mean, because you, you went to this Bible study with, I think, some, or maybe not a lot of Im- impressions of, of Catholics. Like you, you have no Catholic background or no history of, of, of Catholicism, right? So was it kind of a, a blank slate for you when you first, I know you had some, imp- some impressions, but basically a blank slate when you first went to that very first Bible study and then your first mass. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think more or less. I mean, there was a couple maybe sketches on that blank slate, but despite growing up in Maryland, a state quite literally (laughs) named after the Virgin Mary, I knew hardly any Catholics. I could think of a couple people in my neighborhood who were like Christmas and Easter Catholics, but couldn't really tell you anything about your faith. And, you know, confirmation for them was nothing more than an opportunity to get some money. And they were excited about that. The classes (laughs) they were not excited about. I think I had one relative. uh, Actually, so the uncle who I went to the Bible study with, his wife was Catholic and she would go more or less weekly, but I wouldn't say in any sense of the word, like really like a devout Catholic or practicing Catholic in a lot of ways, but kind of culturally Catholic. And so that was about the extent of my interaction with Catholicism. I had some idea that they really liked Mary and they probably didn't read their Bibles and were a bit misguided. But other than that, I didn't know a lot. I just, I thought they were all nominal Catholics. And then I went to this Bible study and met a lot of dudes that were getting there at 5 30 in the morning for a bible study which i could barely be persuaded to do (laughs) and uh they loved christ and they loved the bible and i didn't have a category for that that was confusing to me but also really intriguing and then like you said yeah i had i'd never been to a mass before that i can think of at least and that you know the rest is history i suppose from there but yeah yeah and so you've you've spent time since then really digging into these different issues like digging into and looking really, I think it's fair to say, into the to the ancient faiths and and church mm-hmm. history. Is that is that? Fair? I mean, it wasn't as if you your your channel solely produces uh, Catholic content, which asks and answers Catholic questions on this journey, right? There's we're talking about kind of the, the history of Christianity and questions that dig into to, to church history as a whole, right? Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I opened that can of worms, and I think anytime you go into the the rabbit. Uh, trail of church history, you're confronted with the claims of Catholicism, but also orthodoxy and trying to make sense of where the church came from and how we've gotten where we are today. And then the more intimidating and pressing question of, okay, so in light of where it came from and how we've gotten here, where should we be today? The final question is one I'm still working through. Yeah, which is which is intense, <laughs> intense question. So I guess, I mean, one of the things that interests me and that, that I think a lot of people who find your channel and find the work that you're doing appeals to them is that, so I, you know, I, since age 15, was firmly evangelical and we, we had in church history classes at, at church on the you know, adult Sunday school and stuff. When I began to dig into Catholicism and then church history kind of in general, I found a lot that I, I didn't know, just the history of even my, my Protestant faith. Right, so part of this part of this journey for you, I mean, also in in your studies at Moody, right, is 
also kind of uncovering some of the historical kind of theology or how questions got settled certain ways, right? Or, or how certain things kind of came to be. I'm thinking of all kinds of things from, from the Bible to the, the, the papacy, how we interacted with that, I mean, baptism, these kinds of historical topics, right? And one of the, one of the, the questions I think that you ask on your channel and that I certainly ask on, on my journey, which ended up me becoming Catholic, of course, were some of the historical roots of some of these questions. So were there were there these were the questions like that that you began to wrestle with as you began to to look into this? You you maybe didn't have a firm view on or didn't really have a grasp on and and, and realized that what you believe was kind of just what what you held, I don't know, growing up or at this time and then when you began to dig into that, it was like, oh yeah, there's different views on this kind of thing. Did you find some of those kind of experiences? That the historical view was maybe different than what you had held and you began to kind of unwind your view on something? Yeah, I think definitely. And as you mentioned, you know, being a theology student here at Moody, yeah. I think that's also part of just the broader narrative. Right. I was yeah. talking with my roommate just the other day. He was asking me, like, so by what time, he's a freshman, do I need to have an opinion on all these issues? Because I didn't even know these were issues to have an opinion on. And I think that's a, a great way of summarizing a lot of theological education is you didn't even realize there were these controversies much less have an opinion on the controversies. And I think my investigation into church history has exemplified that. There's so many things that I didn't even think to have an opinion on because I didn't know there was a debate going on. And so as I've gone through, there have been views that I had that have been challenged and maybe changed. There's also been areas that were just a complete blind spot for me that I'm just trying to get up to speed on and make sense of the various uh, ways of approaching the question before trying to give an answer. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what what's one of the first areas that you can remember maybe if you can think back over the last year that you were like, "Oh, I didn't I this is a this is a, an, an open question where you where you kind of held something and were like, "Oh, I, I hadn't thought of it before." For me, it was even an issue of like the Eucharist or something, right? As a as a evangelical, I just assumed everyone thought it was a symbolic thing and that we did this once a month and it was this kind of commemoration. I can remember encountering the idea of wait, Jesus. People believe that Jesus actually is is is, is present there, and that was like you know eye opening that other people thought that because I hadn't hadn't heard that. Is there a topic for you can that you can remember being maybe the first that you you encountered that were kind of like oh this is a debate? <laughs> yeah, you know I think the Eucharist was definitely part of that. I might have started to get into it once I had taken maybe like my first survey level classes here at Moody, but really didn't think much of it. I mean, growing up in my kind of uh, non-denominational uh, evangelical church that I grew up in, it was always repeated, yes, and this is a symbol. You know, this is not, Jesus isn't saying you're eating his body. There's probably a bit of uh, latent kind of Catholic polemic in there that I didn't even really pick up on. It was just like, yeah, of course, like that, I've tasted that. It tastes like a wafer. Makes sense, you know? <laughs> okay. Um, and so I didn't really think that much of there's serious arguments going on here, much less the historical precedent that, wait a second, my view's actually in the minority, like vast minority until, I don't know, this 15th, 16th, or 16th century was Zwingli. I think there's other things too. Apostolic succession, I don't think I'd ever heard of before I started looking into these right. things of, oh wait, you're saying like that, that they have authority because someone laid hands on them who was connected to the apostles? Like, that's kind of cool. Never even thought of that. I thought you just became a pastor when, I don't know, maybe you went to school, maybe you didn't, but you're a good preacher and 
people start listening to your sermons and that makes you a pastor. I mean, I didn't even really have a theology of ordination. I'm sure there are lots of other things. Some of the Marian dogmas, I don't think I'd ever even heard of, much less had an opinion on, um, except for just the baseline assumption that if a Catholic says something about Mary, they're probably saying too much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure the list could go on. Yeah. Yeah, I can remember first being challenged by a Catholic friend who wasn't very good Catholic. Didn't leave a good impression on me, but he, he we had some conversations and he said, do you believe in the Immaculate Conception? And I said, yeah, of course, Jesus was born, you know, f- from Mary. He goes, no, 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 that's not, that's not at all what it means. We believe that, you know, it means that Mary was born without sin. And I go, oh, like that's a thing people believe? And I had, right, I had, I had no idea. On things like the Eucharist too, right? I think that what you said there is really interesting that, and I encountered that too. And I know that others, I'm thinking of someone like Francis Chan, right? Who's kind of very publicly digging into the history of the, of the Eucharist in some of his more recent things he's he's written and videos he's done over the last year and a bit. But I didn't, I didn't realize that for the for the majority of of Christian history, right up and and the majority of Christians throughout all time, if you add those all those Christian believers up across time and across space, have have believed or been part of a church that believes that Jesus was actually present there, that kind of right floored me. And I know you did a fantastic. I know. You're surprised everyone loved it, but uh, uh, a discourse on on John six, right? The famous uh, Eucharistic discourse that, that Jesus gives in the Gospel of John, and I know I laugh because you you happen to be working through John in your kind of, I think even prior to the channel going quite large, right? You're working through the Gospel of John, and just so happened that here was here was chapter six, which is the famous, and you had some pretty interesting conclusions. Do you feel like this is a safe space to work through some of those conclusions you came to? Because it was an interesting thing you wrestled with. And I think you came to some pretty honest conclusions. You're always nothing if not honest. Can we wrestle a bit with the Eucharist? Like what did you, what did you, or what have you kind of come to? uh, If we can talk about that, like in this year of, of digging into this kind of thing and, and having guests on this topic and doing this this kind of work, where, where are you on that? Yeah, and this is definitely a safe space to work through that. Although I have heard by our mutual friend, um, Dr. Matthew Thomas, that you're a bit of a pushy Canadian. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But um, I think it's a safe space. And I, I mean, it's something I've talked about on my channel, yeah. so I'm happy to talk about it. But yeah, you you got the timeline right. The channel had kind of taken off. I was already doing a series on John. Funny enough, I was actually doing a series on James when the uh, first video took off. And the very like next week was is it james three i guess where it talks about faith and works and i was like oh my goodness what have i got myself into um but yeah then it kept growing and i find myself in john six and i'm just shaking my head why why must i do this but yeah so i did my best to dig into that passage and really look at not only what modern catholics are saying about this and what kind of the best like modern catholic commentaries and modern protestant commentaries but also what do the church fathers have to say and the way i I think I summarized in that video and it's a lot of hemming and hawing, which is why I think it's kind of funny that it has um, a somewhat substantial amount of views is that I could see it at the time. I might say it a bit more strongly now, um, but I'll stick with this for at least now that, you know, from the text alone, like just sitting at it, you know, a couple thousand years removed from it and trying to read, I think it was like DA Carson and whoever wrote the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture commentary. I could see how it's 
kind of, you know, I, I could see both sides. I was like, okay, I get what you're saying there. But then you look at the church fathers and if, you know, maybe those two commentaries on the text alone seemed kind of like this, I mean, I'd have to drop my tea. I don't want to do that. But it, I mean, it, it's nowhere close. It, it's near unanimous of this belief in the real presence. And that was really unsettling to me. And I wasn't quite sure what to do with that, but I came away from that video also greatly helped. I should give credit to where it's due uh, by Dr. Brant Petrie's book, uh, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. And I came away from it with this tentative conclusion of like, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. I don't really know how this all works, but it seems like the text when read in the context of church history and even outside of that, it seems to point towards Jesus being present in the Eucharist. And that's all about all I had. I wasn't really sure what, what else to do with that. Um, I thought about it some more since. And I would still say that I think Jesus is present in the Eucharist. I would still say I'm not exactly sure how to properly define that. I probably, and this might bother some people, at the time I was like, I don't think transubstantiation is right. Like that's that's too Aristotelian. That's all just scholasticism. And I had a couple of professors influence me to where those are just bad words. So if it's related to that, it's got to be wrong. Um but after working through it with uh, Dr. Brett Salkeld, who I had on the channel, came away saying, yeah, I think that's a legitimate way of talking about it. I'm not sure it's the only way. And I'm, you know, and this gets into authority questions and how dogmas work. I'm not sure I dogmatize that definition, but I think it's a, a fair way of talking about it. And I don't have a problem with it. I also don't have a problem with Orthodox or Lutheran saying like, yeah, it's Christ's body. When Lutheran answer would be, well, yeah, he just says, this is my body. Like, what more do you want? Um, we don't need to define it past that. But I don't particularly think transubstantiation is a bad attempt at a definition of something that's ultimately maybe a bit beyond uh, like our full grasp. Yeah, that's that's well said. I, that's Yeah, I totally, I'm, I'm following you there. I'm, I'm tracking with you. And I think that what's striking, I think, even if, so even if you don't, have to define what the real presence means in, in this, you know, transubstantiation type dogmatized way. It seems clear to to me when I read the Church Fathers, and I think you'd agree, that it certainly isn't just symbolic. Like that understanding that I think we would have both held originally, that certainly is out the window, I think. Because there's no, I mean, there are some, I think, Church Fathers who might sound like they're speaking symbolically. Of course, that in, in context might my, I think you can push back on 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 that as the case, but certainly as merely symbolic. If you're looking at, at the church fathers, right, it's pretty hard to find. You know, the overwhelming majority it seems pretty clear on the idea that Christ is really present in the Eucharist. However, you define that, right, is I think where there's some wiggle room. But uh, yeah, that's kind of striking, right? The idea that there really isn't a good basis in the fathers for just a, a merely symbolic representation, right? Yeah, I, I think that's well said. And Dr. Salkeld, when he was on my channel, he put this really well. People should check out his book. It's great. Um, but he's like, when you see the fathers using the word symbol, you have to remember that like a lot of these guys are Platonists or yeah, Neoplatonists. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they're like, is it a is it real or is it a symbol? They're like, 
symbols are the most real things. What does that even mean? <laughs> um, and like that, that concept of kind of dichotomizing that wouldn't really make sense. They're all like working with the assumption that he's really present, even if they might use language that to our kind of post enlightenment minds, it sounds like symbol meaning not real or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I have, have heard too. And, and definitely probably on your channel <laughs> and, and right. That makes a lot of sense. That context of what those words actually actually mean right so that's a an interesting conclusion to draw right do you do you see tension in because i i've heard of i've heard of of evangelicals of of non non-orthodox you know protestants non-orthodox non-catholic you know not not even lutherans say well yeah i i do believe that too in a certain way do you find a tension in saying well i believe christ is really present there that's what the church always believed but i can keep doing communion how i've always done it in a group that maybe doesn't uh, affirm that I, I i don't know what i'm trying to say is is it okay for for an individual to say yeah i believe the crisis present there when that isn't the understanding of say the wide right the the, the wider swath of of say baptists or or methodists or or what or non-denominational church right that makes sense yeah, it does. And I might maybe distinguish between two ways you worded it yeah. in there of, is there tension with that? And is that okay? I would say, yes, there's definitely tension. And I feel like the past year of my life has been filled with <laughs> nothing, if not tension, uh, trying to wrestle through these things. Is it okay? I, I think it's fine for people to be in that place. It, maybe it's a place of transition as they're working things through, or maybe that's where they always stay. I think what it comes down to, if you're going to try to seemingly have your foot in both worlds is the question of what uh, what results in Christ being present in the Eucharist. So if it requires uh, the Eucharist being confected by a priest with valid ordination and apostolic succession, well, then that's a problem because you don't have that at your Baptist church, at least in like a um, historical sense. You might make an argument for apostolic succession of doctrine, but not necessarily office. So if you come to not only the conclusion that Christ is present in the Eucharist, but he's only present in the Eucharist when confected by a priest in um, with valid apostolic succession or in visible union with Rome per se, yeah, that that's going to be a tension that, I'm, I don't want to say it's not okay, you can, you know, work through that, but that's going to be a higher level tension than if you say, yes, Christ is present in the Eucharist, but it's not as a result of the priest. So that even in my Baptist church, where I don't go to a Baptist <laughs> church, but um, for this hypothetical person, even for my Baptist church, where they don't believe that, it, it doesn't stop Christ from actually being present in the Eucharist. And if I can receive him in the Eucharist, then that's great. In my own personal life, you know, over the past year, I had kind of a ministry mentor that was planting a church and I was kind of helping with them with that. And I considered one of my great successes of helping with that, being able to talk them into weekly communion, um, which is a strange thing for a church yeah. like that. But given kind of where I've come to, I'm like, no, I, I think you really need that. Should I get, should I get controversial on Keith's podcast? I don't know. We'll, we'll do it. Um, I'm not going to say this is my opinion right now. But I do think that for a lot of church history, um, there's a sense of like, if you don't have the Eucharist at your church, it might be a great gathering. Like you might, like, I think if you took a church father into a Baptist church or something like that, where they do only do 
communion, say quarterly, he might be like, yeah, that was a great message. Really enjoyed it. The music kind of weird, but like maybe I could be down with it, you know, if I got up to speed in a while. But like this wasn't like a church service, right? Was this like a prayer service? Because you didn't have the Eucharist. So like this isn't church then, right? Um, and I think that's something worth wrestling. I'm not saying that those Baptist churches aren't churches, but I do think we have to recognize historically that would be incredibly anomalous to have a church service, which they probably wouldn't call a service, but without the Eucharist, it just wouldn't make sense. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting, Austin, because the guy, so the, I started the episode of the podcast talking about this pastor who first got me thinking of these things. And th- this guy was raised Catholic, was doing a couple of master's degrees, eventually a PhD and wrestling through some church history things and some of his own upbringing and was asking me, I, I was an intern at the church, so asking me these different kind of his sounding board, different questions about church history and these things. Really, I see in hindsight wrestling through his own kind of upbringing. And he said once kind of out of nowhere that he didn't think that our student church was a real church because we never had communion. Um, we weren't, you know, we were, we, it was a student church meeting on Monday nights. We had, we had worship, we had a message, we had prayer, and that was it. We, we never had communion as part of that there was no membership. There was no, it was kind of a, a, a loose kind of affiliated student church. At the time I thought, that's so weird. Like, why would he say we're not a church? Cause there's no communion. And, you know, like you said, now that I've done more work and really he got me on that journey of, of doing that work. I'm like, yeah, I can, I can affirm that for sure. Because if you're never doing communion, you're really at a step with the historical church in what they saw as the center point of their services. But you make a really good point here too, right? That, yeah, you 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 drop that church father. First of all, like you said, like you say, he'd be down with it. I like that because, of course, that I pictured this church father, like you know, really, really hip in like these ancient robes and this giant beard just being plopped down. But yeah, I'm down with it, right? But yeah, that would be anomalous, right? To, to so that's certainly interesting. That's definitely worth, you know, I for the wider evangelical world, the wisdom of Austin Suggs. Like that's a really interesting thing to. To say, yeah. And that's controversial. That's, yeah. Whew. That's well, and, spicy and I'll throw something in maybe for those evangelical <laughs> listeners. Maybe uh, it might be something they can uh, relate to. Because I know for me, and I've heard this as a trope at other kind of Bible colleges or seminaries, there's chapel frequently, right? We have chapel four times a week here at Moody. And something you will hear ad nauseum is that, hey, but chapel isn't church. You need... You need to be plugged in at a local church. This chapel service is not church. And and we don't have the Eucharist there. But simultaneously, most of the churches those people go to, they don't have the Eucharist frequently either. And so when you really have to step back, it's, well, what? Why isn't chapel church? I mean, we have a message. There's the, the evangelical liturgy of two or three songs at the beginning and probably one at the end. And there's a nice sermon. Like, I mean, besides the fact that the building doesn't say church on the outside, I'm really not sure what makes that not church besides it's not Sunday morning or that person doesn't know you personally. But I think when you bring this into it, it allows you to look at it a little differently and say, oh, well, that's one clear way I could say, well, this isn't a church because this isn't, it doesn't have the sacraments here. You're not going to be baptized here and you're not going to take the Eucharist here. And so, yeah, this is, this is a worship gathering. This is a, a, a preach, an evangelistic thing, or this is like a conference type of thing. But it gets a little uncomfortable if you're, especially if you're never doing those things, but if they're rarely happening, I don't know. 
what really is the difference besides, you know, again, the, the sign on the building or something a little more arbitrary like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you said the word liturgy. I want to come back to that. But I want to first, okay. because you mentioned these two things, and apostolic succession was one of the one of those big ones. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that for me, again, was one of those like, oh my gosh, what? Like, what are you talking about? This is a thing. But then once I realized what it meant, it became really important for me. And you begin to ask questions like, well, what makes a pastor a pastor? And what makes a church a church? And can anybody start this thing? And, and how is how do you relate that to the larger body of Christ and to the historic church and all these things? That was probably nowhere on your radar when you were beginning this journey, was it? Is that, is that safe to say? And, and then uh, what did you begin to think about that? I mean, Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, that was one of those questions that I didn't know the question existed. So I didn't yeah. know to have an answer to the question. And when I first came into Moody, I wanted to be a church planter and I wanted to be a dynamic speaker and I was going to build the next mega church. Like I was, I was pumped. That's what I was going to do. That's what I came here for. Um, And that's changed a lot. And um, it's, yeah, I suppose God in his humor as I decided like, no, like, I don't want that. Like, that sounds awful. Um, Gave me this large audience that I don't know what to do with. Um, and so that's a whole nother thing. But yeah, as far as apostolic succession, that wouldn't have been on my radar. Like if you're a gifted speaker, not only can you start a church, but you probably should because you need to reach people. And well, you know, <laughs> yeah, I probably had all types of difficulties. I probably would have said like, and these old churches, like they're not reaching anybody. So let's plant a new one that's actually yeah. doing something and get a good preacher in there and everything. And then yeah, I will say though, over the past year of having kind of helped with this church plant, there were those times of like, and I've heard this in a lot of people's stories that they were part of a church plant or something like that. And they're like, like, shouldn't someone have to sign off on this? Like, can we just do this? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I guess you can. Um, but apostolic succession really does make that question difficult. Now we can get more into maybe. I don't know my thoughts on apostolic succession and all of that if you want. Um, but yeah, it's definitely been something that's been on my mind. Yeah, because the the default like is as you described, right? You and I was part of a, very much a similar kind of non-denominational startup church that kind of broke away from a Pentecostal church, but we kind of made up our leadership structure on on the fly and it was very much this a guy had a vision to start a church and started started this church, right? And that was okay, that's what you do, right? You you Sometimes you're sent by a larger denomination, but even that, I think these days is less and less common because more and more, more non-denominational churches are, are, are starting up, right? And you really, I got a call to plant this, I'm planting it. And it's kind of the default, right? It's, it's the, the water you swim in. It's just, it's just the normal thing you do, right? But you begin to ask questions about, and I remember for me, it was reading um, St. Francis de Sales' Catholic Controversy, which, you know, he was a bishop of Geneva at the time of the Reformation and kind of was writing against these reformers, really kind of saying, well, wait a minute, who gave you the authority to start that church? Like, where do you trace that authority to? Like, where in the Bible does it say to start a church? You know, which bishop said, okay, you can go break away from this church here? And it was the first time I kind of realized that there kind of was a, a, a line of succession from the apostles and that was kind of handed on you know apostle to to then the first bishops and they kind of passed that on down along the way and of course there there were there were splits in the church the orthodox schism is the largest one but there was at least an understanding that you had to be apostolically succeeding somebody else right in in that line of authority to to 
to be ahead of any kind of church. You couldn't just, as St. Francis of Sales said, just hang a shingle kind of on, on this building and then and make that a church, right? And that for me was suddenly very important. I suddenly realized how much sense that made and how kind of crazy it was to think you could just start a church. Like it's such a radically different conception of what it means to start churches and to be the body of Christ or the church, right? When you realize that for a lot of church history, it was this idea that authority came from somewhere. There was authority from a certain place and it kind of flowed down the line. It wasn't just, I got a calling from God and so I'm going to start this. It's radically different, right? Is that kind of where you're digging in? Like, (laughs) if that makes sense? Yeah, I think it does. And I think... It raises a lot of difficult questions, and I guess to represent the the Protestant answers to some of those, uh, so at the same time as like St. Francis de Sales, as you've got Calvin uh, in Geneva, what what he responds to that, not necessarily directly, I don't don't know, but in his institutes, he he takes up this question, and he, he takes it seriously, because people are like, this is a new thing. Like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what y'all are doing. And what he says is, well, he says a couple of things. He says that the idea of apostolic succession um, isn't necessarily biblical, but his bigger argument is he's like, look, what do we do in this situation? We say there's apostolic succession of office, but they don't have the apostolic succession of doctrine. And so if we have to choose between the two, he says, you know, your apostolic succession of office, which in some ways he recognizes, um, he's like, it doesn't mean anything if you don't have that apostolic succession of doctrine. And so he's like, in this doctrine vacuum, it's incumbent upon us to kind of go back to, you know, ad fontes was like one of their things back to the sources. And so what does scripture and kind of the earliest church say on this? And there's some, you know, plenty of questions there um, on how does Calvin line up with those things? Um, but that's kind of the, the question that they begin to give there. I think it's a worthy thought experiment for sure. Um, and I think what other people will say too is that, okay, we certainly see this idea of apostolic succession early on. And this is something that um, our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Gavin Ortland, has talked about in Irenaeus against heresies. We're like mid second century here. And what, you know, uh, Dr. Ortland and others will say is like, yeah, that made a lot of sense when like, you can kind of point to the guys. It's like, yeah, he like he succeeded him who su- succeeded the apostles. Like, that's a pretty good argument at that time. But what they'll say is, you know, by the 16th century, does that succession of office really mean much? Like, does that ensure that you keep that apostolic doctrine? And so I think that's kind of the way that Protestants will answer that. And I don't want to kind of leave that off the table. And I, I think it's a worthy thing to be thinking through. And those are kind of the questions that, I'm thinking through. Yeah. And, and see, for me, that's, that's, yeah, I, I'm there. But then my, my, my pivot is okay. Well, if that system that seems like it was established in, in, in the Bible, and I think there's pretty good, I mean, okay, let's take a step back here because I encountered things like the idea of binding and loosing and these things, the idea mm. of forgiving sins. And I didn't know what to do with that as evangelical, right? What, what, those were some of those verses that I wrestled with and went, well, what does this even mean? Like, what is this power to bind and loose? And then I, when I, when I was able to sit that in the idea of, of apostolic succession, I went, yeah, this makes sense. Like this is a power that's then being, being passed on. And, and the challenge for me, and maybe you feel a bit of this is, okay, if that was the system established here, and it seems like that's the best way of explaining this in the, in the Bible, that it, 
wouldn't carry on, wouldn't just stop with the first apostles, and then that was it. If it didn't carry on, why did that, at some point, that system fall into disrepair or, or, or stop at some point, right? I I take Calvin's point. That's that's really an important way of looking at that, right? That's definitely worth thinking about, and it maybe and maybe that's the answer, right? But I think you have to point to a, a certain place in time and say, okay, this stopped here, right? Are you, do you feel like that makes sense? Yeah, I think it does, and I think that's what you see people generally pivot to as well. So. Uh, there's some nuance here. Some people might say, hey, as soon as the last book of the New Testament canon is written, that becomes the authority and we kind of set aside this intermediate or in, yeah, intermediate lasting for just a sh- short portion of time uh, authority of say the apostles there. Of Yeah, we don't have the scripture yet, so we need someone to be in charge. And so we'll set that up for now, but now we've got the Bible and capiche, that's going to work. I think you've got other people talking about like, hey, that that applied to maybe Peter, you know, more and more Protestant scholars, and we can get to that maybe down the line. But looking at, say, Matthew 16, want to say like, eh, that whole like Petros, Petros thing, like that kind of looks like you're talking about Peter. Um, and, but, but that doesn't mean the papacy and maybe that kind of died off with Peter. Um, I think another thing that is maybe just illustrative here of how Catholics and Protestants might approach this differently. And I see it in my YouTube comments a lot is on the one hand, you can kind of start with the office or the structure that you have there. And you can say, look, like Matthew 16 or in these other places, um, you know, in John where it's like, I'll breathe the Holy Spirit on you and all these things. It seems like Jesus is setting up this thing that is going to give certain authority and power and whatnot and starting there while other people and go from there to kind of like, okay, so papal supremacy, infallibility, whatever. Whereas other people will say, well, at this present time or throughout time, the Pope's gotten things wrong or the Catholic church has gotten things wrong. Therefore that doesn't mean infallibility because well he's not infallible you know so it's kind of like which end of it are you going to start on are you going to kind of take what we have and say well it couldn't have meant that or are you going to take what started there and say well even if that looks wrong it has to be right because of you know what we have in the office and so i have a lot of sympathy for people kind of approaching this from different perspectives um yeah i don't know if that even started to answer your question but (laughs) hopefully yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And I just, yeah, I wonder, I mean, is this, is this beginning to change your idea of what church means? In in the sense that, cause I mean, for me, it began to, to raise the question, well, like, where do these, are these churches rooted, right? And can you just start up a new, I mean, you mentioned the tension of, of working at this, this church plant. It raised a lot of questions for me over, is this, important. I, I have a good friend who is, is part of a non-denominational church and they have apostolic elders, right? And it means that one elder leaves the church when, when they're finished, lays hands on a second elder. And, and so there's, there's a kind of continuation there. They, they see the importance of this succession, but if you trace it back, you know, all the way, well, some guy started that church, just some guy or some, a group of people just began that church. So there is a kind of succession, but it goes back to, you know, these guys who, began a church kind of thing. Is there, again, a tension for you in, in the idea that there are these churches out there that somebody started and that seems like 
kind of weird? Yeah, I think in some ways. I think what kind of, I don't know, bears mentioning is that while there's a traceable line for, say, like the Bishop of Rome, for the vast majority of priests, you're not going to get to, and someone started a church, but if you take your kind of parish priest, you're probably not going to trace him back to one of the apostles. The The records just don't yeah. go that far. Now, I do get that it's not a perfect parallel because there's this assumption that whoever ordained the person before him was in the Catholic church and it wasn't like some brand new church. But I think it's worth mentioning at least that there's kind of apostolic succession as the idea and the framework. And maybe we can see that working out in certain lines. Um, but I think sometimes we can over romanticize it. Yeah, of yeah. yeah. Every priest traces back to the apostles. It It's just not that simple when we get to the kind of, I don't know, uh, granularity of the historical data. But I, the question of, is there some tension with like, and someone just started this church? I think in some ways, I also think sometimes it's a bit overplayed. I get these comments a lot of, well, Jesus started my church. Who started yours? Um, And I think it kind of misunderstands the Protestant position because Luther wasn't about to, he wasn't out to say that like, I'm starting a new church. Now I know this kind of frustrates people because from a Catholic perspective, that's precisely what he did. And I, I think that's very fair to come to that conclusion. But I think also with kind of just historical charity and examining the sources, at least what we what we can say, even if you disagree with him, is, well, that's his self-conception, is that he's in line with the the holy Catholic and apostolic church. Like he's still confessing the Nicene Creed. Um, and same with Calvin. He, he's quick to say like, oh no, like, like we are the heirs of Chrysostom and Augustine. Like we're not really doing something new. We're trying to reform inside of the church. Now, as time went on, even in Luther's life, he's beginning to say like, yeah, I really wanted this to be like an internal reform, but that's just not happening. And so this is going to be its own thing. And then he starts really wrestling with that and not entirely knowing what to do with it. Um, So yes, there's some tension of, okay, on one level, like this church started, I don't know, last year or 20 years ago or 400 years ago, but it it kind of has this odd backstory. Um, At the same time though, recognizing that at the end of whatever backstory for like a historically minded Protestant, whoever started their denomination wasn't trying to start like a rival church if they're you know theologically orthodox in the lowercase o sense they do think that they're part of the one holy catholic and apostolic church even if people might disagree with that yeah yeah that's that's well said okay i want to touch on liturgy because you mentioned okay you mentioned in passing the evangelical liturgy of a certain Mm. you know how you wanted to reform this in your own way and, and introduce a weekly weekly eucharist and that, that again, is is a word that maybe you wouldn't have used or known before you began. Yeah. This, where were you on liturgy before this all began? Because I know for me, I didn't know what the word even meant. And when I first encountered it, I was like, oh, there's a, right? And and in, in my context, it was actually researching the, the Sunday morning service. And at this non-denominational mm-hmm. church, I wanted to know the roots of, of the church service, right? Why we, as you say, like, you know, you do three worship songs, we close our eyes and pray and the band disappears while we're praying. And then the pastor comes and preaches for 45 minutes and then, then he goes and then we sing more songs and, and, and every month do, do communion. I wondered, I wondered for me, the roots of that, where that came from. And I began digging into that historically and encountered this thing called the liturgy. And I was like, what is, 
what is liturgy? Where where were you on liturgy when you first began this, you know, a, a year ago or so? Yeah, so I'll start just a little before that. When I first came to Moody, I probably would have said liturgy. That sounds boring. Like, what is that like for old people at churches <laughs> where like everyone has gray yeah, hair and it's yeah. going to be closed in the next 20 years? Like, come on, people, like we need exciting stuff. <laughs> and I say this like somewhat facetiously, but like in a lot of ways, that that's kind of the product of the environment that I grew up in. Right. It was very much a church and it's like, hey, we're going to do anything short of sin to bring people to Christ. <laughs> and so if that means we're going to have smoke machines, yeah. we had, I kid you not, a laser harp at one Christmas Eve service. I don't like, uh, yeah, I didn't know what, know what a laser harp was yeah. that before that either. It like shoots lasers and when you interrupt it, it like controls MIDI sounds and makes sounds. Oh, it was, was kind of cool. Wow. Yeah. They were doing like a uh, trans-Siberian orchestra piece. And it's like, but like that was kind of the vibe, like whatever it takes, like yeah. we're going to be cool. Um, and so that, I, and I don't say that mockingly because actually I, there's something I really appreciate about the evangelical ethos of we're going to make disciples. Like yeah. Christ said to do that and we're going to do that. And I, I actually really love that. And I think it's a shame when people kind of leave one tradition and then, I kind of have only spite. And yeah, I think some yeah. of it's just the process of separating and I get that. But at the same time, so I get to Moody, that's my perspective. And then I start to have seeds planted by some Anglican professors. One in particular I took um, for my first theology class. And when you're a theology major at an evangelical school, like the cool thing to do, I don't know why, is to become Anglican. It's like the edgy thing to do. It's like, <laughs> ah, liturgy is cool now. Um, so I hadn't been to a liturgical service, but I was starting to warm to it by the time I started looking into Catholicism. Even still, though, the first time I went to a mass, I was like, now, of course, I went to a low mass in Latin, which is not the best thing to do on your first time. I was like, this just kind of whispered the whole time. Like, that's it? Like, I can't invite a friend to this. They're not going to think this is cool. Um, but over time, it, it's really warmed on me. And it's like, oh, wait, you know, and looking at all types of different things about how our habits shape us and what we do continually. And like, like what is, how is that forming me as I come in and, you know, as you kneel, as you cross yourself, as, as you, you know, kind of corporately recite the creed, these things that I would have taken as rote, just repetition and meaningless, which I think it might be for some people. But I think once you begin to understand what's behind that, you're like, Oh wow, this is really forming people in a deep way. And it's actually kind of cool in a different sense of the word. Yeah, that's amazing because it is exactly that. I mean, I've had a number of guests on this on this show, Dennis McNamara and, and Jeffrey Pinion and some of these guys mm -hmm. who talked about the mass so eloquently as this thing that forms us, right? That's kind of the point of to transform us to be more like Christ, to conform us to to what heaven will be like, you know, in the presence of 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 God Almighty. I think it's so neat that you, you know, kind of hone in on that because yeah that's that's a thing of it right and and i think like you i looked at that originally and you know i went to i went to my first mass was a mass at on campus here the the local university and it was like a weekday mass and i was blown away by the diversity of people that were there like all ages and stages and i didn't really get what was happening at all i think maybe like you going to the low latin mass and you can't even hear anything it's all whispered in a different language i, I but yeah as you go to it, right? It begins to form you and you begin to, it, it, it looks like, like rote ritual, I think from the outside. A, a lot of, I think, Catholic practices might look that way, especially to somebody who's used to smoke harps or laser harps or whatever you, 
I don't know what a smoke harp is. I don't know what a laser harp is. So I, it's the same thing to me. You know, it, it looks like a weird ritual that you're doing, right? But it, it forms you, right? It, it forms you. And if you, I think you, you trace it back in history, right? The mass in some form is, is very similar to how the how the mass was done a long time ago. It's kind of gone changes. And there's, of course, the whole Latin mass and the different rites of, of the Catholic Church that have mass a bit differently. But, right, it's a thing that's meant to form you. And I think the interesting thing for, for me, maybe you can talk about this too. I don't think that a Sunday morning service in my evangelical church was ever meant to to conform me intentionally. When we sang worship songs, there were, there was there was preaching meant to inform our, our heart and mind. But I don't think I was. I'm I'm still struck by the idea that the mass is meant to mirror heaven, worship in heaven, right from the Book of Revelation and. It's intentionally meant to, to form us in a way that I don't think I necessarily experienced or was the intention of a Sunday morning service in an evangelical context. What do you... Yeah, I'll try not to go on too long because I just the other week gave a presentation on beauty and liturgy yeah. and how the evangelical liturgy forms us, but in ways that we're maybe not co- cognizant okay. of. Um, but I'll spare your listeners all of that. Um, but at, at least some of it, I think... You know, even if we're not necessarily thinking in terms of formation, I think what evangelical is kind of the default question, and it's not a, it's not a bad question per se, but there's a question of is it the best question? Is in our services generally in the tradition I grew up in, which would have been so offended at being called a tradition because ugh, that's a dirty word, but <laughs> in that tradition, um, the the primary thought is how do we reach people on the outside? So even in messages, it's not necessarily for the Christians. It's for the people who are coming in for the first time or maybe on their way out. How do we reach people? So it's fundamentally outward looking. It's kind of evangelistic, which already is very different than the early church would have conceived of things. They didn't even let uh, unbaptized Christians like stay for the second part. Um, But so that, that's one of the primary things, but it also betrays a certain image of the human person of primarily a Thinking thingism. I right. stole that word, uh, or that phrase from, uh, uh, he's actually a Calvinist uh, author, James K. Smith, but, or as people as brains on a stick, because what we primarily go, primarily go in with was how do we get information in these people's heads? Because if they believe the right things, well, then there'll be the right kind of Christians. Even if we wouldn't necessarily articulate that, that's kind of what the service is formed around. Now, there's also kind of a shift in the more charismatic Pentecostal right, yeah. uh, expressions of maybe we're not primarily a thinking thing, but maybe we're primarily a feeling thing. And so how can we stir up the right emotions? And while it might sound manipulative, and maybe in some cases it is, that's kind of the design of the service. So you come in and there's you know the first worship song might be upbeat, but then they bring it down and you've got those kind of really atmospheric pads playing underneath kind of the synthesizer things and then the message ends with kind of the keys underneath of it into a nice transition into a high worship song but there's something in all of that that's also has a very individualistic picture of the human person right because you come in well first we're thinking of how can we be relevant to them how can we make them comfortable so we make it look like their favorite coffee shop or something and then you come in and okay how can we get them to feel the right things well we're going to make the music loud enough they can't hear the people around them so it kind of feels personal we'll bring the lights down low enough that you can't really see people and then the message will be primarily focused on personal application and then we'll try to get you leaving with something to think about yourself that's a certain vision that's influenced by kind of 
post-enlightenment um, Western society that's very focused on the inv- individual, but it also portrays something about how you're shaped. You're either shaped through your thoughts or you're shaped through kind of emotions. Whereas when you go into a, a Catholic mass and you go into something that's certainly not designed looking for you when you go in the building, it's primarily designed to get you looking away from yourself, which is already doing something interesting. And then the service isn't really designed to like make you have fun per se, which is a decentering thing. And there's all these communal aspects and, you know, people liturgists could talk about this a lot more eloquently than me, but there's a formational process there. They're both formational, but they're informed by maybe different pictures of how people change and what people fundamentally are. Um, so I probably still went too long on that, but hopefully that answers the question. Oh, that was fantastic. And that's such a great insight that, that you have. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, the one, so a lot of in there to, to unpack, but the one thing you said about the, the mass not being evangelical, right? Not being meant to evangelize, right? I think that's that's so interesting, right? Because a lot of people, and I'm, I'm so glad that you've understood this, a lot of people would would take issue with the Catholic Church from a perspective of an evangelical saying, well, look, the mass is like, I don't understand it. I don't know what's going on there. It seems like a lot of rote and ritual and it, it right? If it's in Latin, sometimes it whispered, I can't even understand it at all. But right, you, I think, uh, rightly nod to the early church to, and this carries on, right? It's not meant to be uh, a tool to evangelize, to, to show, to get people excited about and, and into the faith from the outside, right? Originally it was, you couldn't even be part of that unless you were a baptized member of the church. That was kind of the last thing you got to experience was the mass. Once you had done all the the legwork of learning about it and, and being initialized initiated into the faith, right? And I and I think sometimes and maybe this maybe this this tracks for a lot of even the kind of devotional practices that the Catholics do sometimes, right? You see it from the outside and it looks kind of weird or confusing or you don't, you don't get it or it looks like empty kind of stuff, it's not meant to be something that you necessarily see from the outside and and get until you learn about it, until you are initiated and and, and catechized it and taught about the faith, right? And there's a certain logic in that, but very different from, as you say, like a, like a seeker-sensitive church that you would have grown up in where, it's, where, where the focus is on on making it understandable and accessible, right? Very different things, right? Yeah, they're definitely very different. And I think, I don't know, maybe there's two things I want to say on that. We'll see. Um, You might cut me off before then, and that's fine too, because they might not be relevant. But I think there's a certain beauty to the Mass as something for the church, you know, holy things for holy people, as I believe is in the liturgy there. Um, And there's this sense of like, okay, so you've been initiated into the faith and you've been catechized, and then this is for the Christians. And then... I think this is important. There is still this ideal of, but you are still going out and making disciples. It's just not the mass that's for that. Where I think things get tricky is when you have either a lack of catechesis or a lack yeah. of that kind of evangelical, not in the like proper sense of, not in like the uh, proper noun, but just as an adjective, uh, zeal for making disciples. Because when you don't know what's going on, while those patterns do still have some effect on you. I don't think they have their full effect. When you can combine that kind of embodied worship with an understanding of why 
that can be really powerful. But if you don't understand why, it can become kind of empty or lacking. Um, And I think also on the other hand, if you don't have that then impulse, the kind of missionary impulse or the evangelistic impulse that is so present in Protestant churches, then it can be a thing that's not in its proper place within the full ecosystem of, okay, yes, this is for the Christians, but then they do have that outward engagement, but it can become just kind of a Christian social club that it doesn't get outside of. And I think, I think that can be troublesome. Um, yeah, I, there was a second point and I've already lost it in my head, but I, that's probably enough to say for now. <laughs> that's, that, that's very well said. Those are really good points and uh, good insights. I want to squeeze in the papacy as one, one yeah. last thing, because you said, and this this has really uh, impacted my thinking over the last year, really. And I mentioned you a lot on this show when, when talking about issues of authority and the papacy. <laughs> so it's constantly a shout out to you. But you said, and this is very insightful, way back when, I think, when we first chatted that it, it really boils down all these kind of journeys into the into the ancient faiths, into, into orthodoxy, which didn't even didn't even touch on, versus Catholicism and versus historic Protestantism. It really boils down to questions of authority. And if you... If you can understand the authority structure of the church, you know, if you can say, okay, the Catholic Church has claimed that there is a Pope and this is from the Bible, if I if I agree to this, kind of everything else falls in into line because it all stems from the idea that this this church has the authority to make these decisions and to do these things. And I think that was that was very insightful then. It remains insightful now. I wonder where you are on that. Do you still think that that's what things uh, the the linchpin or or the hinge of all these things, do you still agree with that thought process? And what kind of thoughts have you thought or 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 learned over the last year when it comes to that seat of authority and and kind of what you're you know what you're feeling about that? Yeah, what's up with that? Um, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so. You know, I think in some ways this touches back on a previous point I started to hint at of you can either start from where it is today and is that true? And then say if one doctrine isn't true, you can then kind of pull out the rug of it all. Well, it can't be true. Or you can kind of go for that foundation and say, if you get this, you get everything else. I appreciate both ways of looking at that. To me still, I do think it makes more sense of let's start at the beginning, um, crazy enough idea, and see okay, but like, was the papacy established? If it was, in what way and in what sense? And if you get all the way to, it was, in, it was established in a successional line, that successional line like has been maintained in the Bishop of Rome. And part of that uh, office is the charism of infallibility. I think you're like, I think you got to become Catholic at that point. I still think <laughs> it, it doesn't, there's too much cognitive dissonance to say, yeah, there's an infallible Pope. Um, therefore what he has pronounced is true. Um, but yeah, he's also somehow wrong. Like, I don't know that. And that's probably not a fair way of characterizing people how, who might take a different approach. But to me, I would still say it is uh, the linchpin or as uh, I think Joe Heschmeyer put it on Pope Peter, the church's most distinctive yeah. doctrine, maybe not the most important doctrine, you know, the Trinity, probably more important, but it's the most distinctive. It's the one that kind of stands above the rest and it secures the other ones. So I would still stand by that comment. Um, I I appreciate the kind words, uh, describing it as insightful. So to the real question, not just dancing around it, what's up with that? Where am I at with that? Um, Yeah. (laughs) yeah, 
Yeah, sometimes you get good at like answering the question you want to answer. Pick that up from politicians. No, um, no, I, I'm happy to talk about it actually. So, one of the tricky things about running my channel is also the greatest blessing of it is that I get to talk to really smart people, which is great. Except for most of the really smart people I talk to, all disagree with each other. And so, like one day you're interviewing, you know, Joe Hashmeyer, and you're like, "Wow, this guy's really smart." This really makes sense. And then the next day you're interviewing someone else and you're like, who completely disagrees with him. And you're like, yeah, everything you said sounds really smart <laughs> and really good. And so then you kind of have to go beneath that and do the hard work of like, okay, there's smart people that disagree with each other on this. Um, somebody's right, or at least everybody's wrong. Uh, but both of them aren't right if they disagree. Yeah. And so in that process, I haven't come to conclusions. Um, this is a long way of saying that. I, I can point to things that have been maybe helpful. I think um, on the scriptural level, uh, Joe Hashmeyer brings out certain arguments that are interesting that I hadn't seen before. Specifically, I think his one from Luke, uh, the greatest among you and everything, just never would have read that as kind of something for the papacy. But the, the, the core argument, I think, does come down to Matthew 16. And I really appreciate Swan Sana's work on that and kind of the Jewish roots of that. I think that's a really, really intriguing hypothesis pulling in Isaiah 22. At the same time, I haven't been so convinced by it. I've been able to see, and this is how I feel with a lot of things. I've The first level is seeing that, okay, these aren't things I grew up with and maybe I don't agree with it, but I can see how they make sense. Like you don't have to be dumb to believe these things, <laughs> which is no great insight. But, you know, when you start as far behind as I did, you know, we'll call that an accomplishment. And so I've certainly got to that point. And I, I see arguments like that, and it gets down to these really difficult things of, okay, there was something unique about Peter. I think we should all affirm that. I think we can even say some type of primacy. There's something going on in Matthew 16 of Jesus giving Peter the keys to the kingdom and the binding and loosing, and that definitely does have kind of Jewish antecedents there. And so, okay, something unique is happening here. There's some type of authority, and I, I'm convinced that it, what he's talking about there is primarily even if maybe not exclusively, Peter. I, I think that just makes most sense of the text. What gets difficult then is, okay, if there's a primacy of Peter, and I, I think I'm comfortable saying that, what does that mean? And it still feels like there's more pieces that need to be put in place, in my perspective, between that and a doctrine of papal supremacy with like universal immediate jurisdiction and papal infallibility. I've, I, I'm not going to say persuaded, but I take seriously some of the orthodox critiques of some of those claims of, yeah, like we recognize, sorry about that in the background, uh, a primacy of Peter, but this doesn't seem like how it necessarily functioned in the first millennium. Those get down to really more difficult questions to me than just the question of, is there a primacy of Peter or is Matthew 16 about Peter? I think there's a, a few steps that aren't as easily taken or I just haven't been able to put in the time to get answers to between, yeah, there's something going on with Peter. He's got some authority and to like Vatican one. Yeah. Yeah. And you're also busy, right? <laughs> like a little bit. Like, like, little. I mean, you're, you're full-time studies. You, you've gotten engaged in, in the last year. Congratulations. Yes. Right. Thank you. Thank I mean, you. there's a lot going on. So it's interesting it's interesting because I I do I do check your comments sometimes and f and follow what's going on, on your channel right and I, 
it's this idea that okay, well, Austin, like, answer these questions. Like, come on, like, get off the fence or something, or or do something. But <laughs> you you host a, a a very popular show and prepare for these interviews and and host them and upload them and all these things. Plus, you've your full time studies and you've gotten engaged. There's a lot going on for you, right? And none of these none of these questions that you are so brave and so honest and so humble to be asking have quick or easy answers, right? And they and they shouldn't, right? It, it's, it might be easy to say, oh yeah, Peter's the Pope for sure. Like, look at this. I'm convinced by a couple of books, right? But to do the hard work of digging into these things and, and having these conversations on, on both sides week after week, right? That takes time to process, right? <laughs> yeah, and I really appreciate you pointing that out. I, you know, the cost of doing business online is, is getting comments like that, yeah. that kind of maybe question your motives or your intellectual capacity that, <laughs> you know, it took me two weeks to make the decision after I watched a Scott Hahn video to convert, like, <laughs> what's up with you, Austin? Yeah. Like, you have to be a special type of dense to not be Catholic yet or Orthodox <laughs> or whatever. Um, and you know, it, it's whatever, but I, I appreciate that recognition of like, these are complicated questions and I think they deserve thorough answers. Now, something I found convicting throughout is a challenge I got um, in a video with Trent Horn. And I, I just like to give people credit. I feel like I keep name dropping. Um, but I, I want to give people credit to where credit's due, is, okay, Austin, but what amount of evidence would it take? I've come to the tentative conclusion that, and this might upset people, I don't know. A lot of things I say might upset people. Who knows? Um, it's the cordial Catholic, though. Your audience is so nice. Yeah. I like that. Um, that I'll probably never be like 100% certain on this. But I also don't want that to keep me from making a having enough evidence to come to a conclusion. So I'm not completely agnostic on this. Like, I don't think there's not an answer, but I do recognize like, it'll, it'll be a game of probabilities. Like maybe I'm like 70% sure. And there's arguments that I can see on the other side. Like you can be a smart thinking person and come to a different conclusion. And I recognize that. I think my channel has really taught me that. And I think just given the, the nature of some of these questions and we don't have as much evidence for these as we'd like, I think we have to be honest enough to say, you know, some of these things aren't going to be proved in like an airtight way. We're not going to have like concrete empirical evidence or it's not going to be a syllogism that you can't get yourself out of. It's going to be, you know, on aggregate. When I look at the data, this seems to be the most compelling answer. And I'm becoming okay with that because I think at first it was this thought of, well, somebody's got to be 100%, right? Or like, prove it to me. Prove it. Come on prove it. And now it's more like, how do I weigh all of this evidence? And that's tricky and it's hard and I want to do it well. And I recognize the weight of these questions. Like I don't, I don't take them lightly, even though I'm comfortable interviewing people who disagree. Like, I think these questions do matter and I'm not going to kind of like uproot my life on a whim. I, I want to, to have conviction um, while also recognizing I don't think I'm ever getting to a hundred percent certainty. Yeah, uh, that's that's very well said. That's a great perspective, and yeah, I I, I can affirm that. That makes a lot of sense, right? That yeah, there's got to be a component of 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 faith in faith, right? Like there's got to be. There you go, yeah. faith in faith. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's a great place to end to leave. I mean, we we 
there's things we could touch on for forever. I mean, you didn't even mention sacraments and these kind of things. I mean, there's a lot to, to dig into. Relics, which you experienced pretty early on, I think, in your... I remember you texted me, you'd come back from Mass at St. John Cantius, uh, and they had all the relics on display or something. And you were like, oh my God, there's like relics everywhere. There's it, 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 this enormous collection. I mean, that's a whole other topic for, for a, a different day. But... Uh, I think this is a good place to leave it, Austin. And uh, I know listeners will would, would really appreciate this conversation, and, and I appreciate your, your friendship, your, your your honesty, your openness to these kinds of conversations and, and the work that you're doing on your channel. It's Gospel Simplicity on YouTube. What do you want to say about it? Yeah, nothing much to say about it besides, Keith, thanks for having me on. It's always a joy to talk to you, and thanks for having me back on the podcast. I tried to give extra long answers so that we couldn't cover everything, so you'd just have to have me back sometime, because this is like, oh, can I say that? Oh, that, that'll get me in trouble. This is one of my favorite podcasts, um, but everyone should subscribe, uh, because it's awesome. And yeah, so happy to be here. And yeah, if they want to check out Gospel Simplicity, they can do so. Um, but only after they've subscribed to the Cordial Catholic. If you've watched this whole video and you're not subscribed, I don't why know. Why not? Yeah. Why? Why not? That's just mean, right? Just, yeah. You, you can just tap it lightly. It's easy. It's, it's just push it, right? Yeah. yeah. Thanks. And thank you for, yeah, the, the, I mean, the work you do, you, you, these videos you're producing, the questions you're asking, this work is, I think, so important. And it's part of this. You know, you are the history books will look back on Austin Suggs, right? And and you'll be one of these guys who I think really is leading this this new ecumenical discussion happening online and on YouTube. It really is, in my mind, a renaissance of good discussion. But these theology theology nerd is is this the hoodie you're wearing? I think and I think that you're one of these guys driving the, the, this these deep discussions in theology. And I think it's amazing that we can have at our fingertips these amazing discussions. So really thank you. And the work you're doing for the church is, is incredible to be a part of that. Mm. So, so thanks man for, for, Uh for all that. And thanks for coming back on the show. And, uh, thanks for, for this being one of your favorite podcasts. We'll talk off air about why isn't your favorite, but we'll leave that for another time. Thank you, Austin. And, and truly God bless. And, and thanks for everything. My pleasure. Thanks, Keith. Well, there you go, friends. Hopefully, you enjoyed that conversation with Austin. A bunch of, I enjoyed having it. It was more just a good, good time chatting over, <laughs> over uh, a, a podcast than anything else. So, hopefully, that for you was also interesting and engaging. And I think it was a great conversation. The Cordial Catholic is our website for show notes and for links and my blog and those kinds of things. We're on Instagram and Twitter at cordial catholic on youtube at youtube.com slash the cordial catholic and on facebook at the cordial catholic you can reach me by email at cordial catholic at gmail.com i get tons of emails right back to them as soon as i can but i do love hearing from you guys it really helps me to engage with this community and i appreciate all your feedback and reaching out i do get back to those emails as soon as i can so thank you Please do subscribe to this podcast where you find it. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please take a second to leave a rating or a review. Those really help to push the podcast out to new people who are looking at different Catholic podcasts. Those are so, so valuable. So please, if you can, take a second and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps the show to spread far 
and wide. We're on Patreon at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or paypal.me slash cordialcatholic for a generous one-time donation to help support this show. That really does help enable me to keep doing this thing. It's getting busier and busier and busier. So thank you for your support. It's meaningful, it's important, and it helps me to keep this thing going. Thanks, guys, for listening. Please pray for me, pray for Austin, pray for our church, and I'll talk to you again next week. Friends, thank you, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.